We're almost at the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, we're actually in the last unit of the book. Chapters 10 and 11 and 12 are one section that describe one last vision from Daniel. And so these chapters are actually meant uh, to be read in unison together. And I want to encourage you to do that this coming week because it helps you get a sense of what's happening here. But I wanted to also be merciful and not have three chapters of Bible reading and preach for three hours. And so we're only going to deal with parts of it today. Um, the bulk of this final vision is quite similar to chapter 8. Daniel sees once again into the future, and he has a vision of Antiochus IV, a Greek ruler who will wreak havoc on the nation of Israel around 167 BC. So this is the future for Daniel, but for us, from our vantage point, this is the ancient past. But this final vision in these chapters includes some haunting details about the last king before time comes to an end. Things Daniel sees uh, show that the world is going to get worse, suffering will intensify, significantly so, before the kingdom of God is finally established on earth as it is in heaven. And so there are parts of this vision that remain in the distant future for us too. But here's the thing, we're not going to get into the fine details of this vision. If you're wondering who the prince of Persia was or who uh, Michael is, I'm actually not going to answer those questions this morning. If, if those questions are important to you, I can point you to some really helpful resources. But in the last two sermons we'll dedicate to Daniel and to these chapters, I want to look not at the vision itself, but how Daniel was prepared for the vision and how Daniel responded to the vision. Because all throughout the book, in everything that transpires in these chapters, from the events that went on in Daniel and his friends' lives to the intense dreams and visions that we don't always understand, Daniel is always working to answer the questions, how do we live in a foreign land and how do we fit in here without being swallowed up? And although Daniel's experience of exile is very different from our lived experience, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you are an exile. That's what the scriptures say. You are an exile on earth because your citizenship is now in heaven. So it doesn't matter where you live or how good it may be or how much you may like the place that you call home. It is not your true home. You are waiting in hope for a better city, a better country, a better nation. You are waiting for the kingdom of God. You're waiting for the time that God will fully reveal himself to the earth and establish his kingdom here in this place. And so we're exiles. But Daniel shows us that our time in exile, our time in this city, should not be put to waste. Time and time again, Daniel seeks the welfare of Babylon. He seeks the welfare of his exile. And we're called to do the very same thing, to seek the well-being and flourishing and love of this city in hopes that we might see glimpses of the good that is yet to come. And as we consider how Daniel was prepared for this last vision, an important truth becomes crystal clear. We will not and cannot survive life in exile by our own strength alone. We just don't have the strength. We're not even strong enough to walk in the ways of God by our willpower alone because the big idea in this passage is this. God alone strengthens us to be sustained by his love so that we can survive in exile. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 10. We're going to explore this big idea uh, in two points, weakness 
and strength. Uh, and everything's going to be on the screen behind me. We'll begin in verses 2 through 9. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw this vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Let's begin with weakness. In many respects, Daniel, he's a spiritual giant. He's demonstrated time and time again the sort of faith we would want to emulate. He's been ripped out of his homeland, and yet he's lived in Babylon without compromise. He's remained faithful to God. He's been devout in prayer. He's been someone who fasts. We just read he's been fasting again for three weeks. He's a person of character. He's put in difficult situations and he does not compromise his faithfulness to God and his convictions about what it means to follow God, even if it puts his life on the line. From any evaluation, from his, his discipline in, in scripture, in studying the word, to praying, to fasting, to seeking the well-being of, well, of, of Babylon, Daniel's impressive. He's a spiritual giant. But the moment that the veil between heaven and earth is pulled away, and Daniel's exposed to spiritual realities and truths. He can't even stand on his own two feet. Daniel puts it this way. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed. It's a little sassy in my opinion, my radiant appearance. But my radiant appearance was fearfully changed. It's literally my splendor was changed to ruin. Twice in these opening verses, Daniel says, my strength evaporated. It was gone. And this angel has a voice that sounds like a multitude. It sounds like a stadium erupting. And when the angel speaks, Daniel is so overwhelmed that he falls into a deep sleep. He's knocked out. He passes out. He can't handle it. He is done and down for the count. So even though Daniel is a spiritual giant in many ways, even though he's an exemplary model of faith, this great vision is too much for him. It's too much for him to bear. He is too weak for the spiritual sights and realities set before him. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, writes Daniel in verse 10 and 11. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So the angel wakes up Daniel, puts Daniel on his hands and knees, tells Daniel to stand up. And then in verse 14, the angel says, I've appeared to give you understanding. This is why I'm here to tell you what all this vision means. But as the angel speaks, 
Trembling and fear overtakes Daniel again. Look at verse 15. When he had spoken to me, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. And once Daniel can muster up words, what does he say? Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pain has come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. This is too painful. I don't have the strength. I don't have the breath. There's a cycle here. The angel speaks, Daniel falls asleep. The angel wakes up Daniel and speaks, Daniel goes mute. The angel gives Daniel back his voice. Daniel says, stop, I can't handle it. Daniel's eyes are open to spiritual realities. Daniel sees the truth. He's encountering angelic messengers who are coming to give him understanding about a vision of the end. And it causes Daniel to crumble. It crushes him. What is happening to Daniel? Is it just that he's become frail in his old age? Daniel's probably in his 80s at this point. Or is it just this specific vision has some sort of overwhelming nature to it? Even so, you would think all the fasting and the praying, the devotion to studying scripture and cultivating character, that all of that would have prepared Daniel for moments like this. Isn't that how it's supposed to work? Daniel is deeply religious, but he can't even handle a religious experience. So what gives? One commentator wrote, the truth is more devastating than we suppose. The truth is more devastating than we suppose. C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, wrote a great little short story called The Great Divorce. Is anyone familiar with The Great Divorce? And in this story, he describes people's journey from earth into a heavenly land, and they get on a rickety bus uh, that takes them to heaven, because that's how it actually works. And whenever someone arrives, the character who's coming from earth to heaven discovers that everything in heaven is much weightier and more solid than the things of earth. So flowers can't be plucked because they're too heavy, or grass is, is too sharp and hard to walk on, and rocks are like diamonds. And those who journey from earth into this heavenly land realized they had it all backwards. They had lived on earth thinking that earth was the place of substance, that earth was the place of reality, and they thought that heaven was kind of spiritual and amorphous and less substantial than earth. But they had it backwards. Heaven is the land of substance. Earth is the land of shadow. Heaven is reality itself, and it's far more weightier and substantial that the travelers from earth realize that in comparison, they're but ghosts and shadows. And there's one encounter between a character in this book and an angel that helps us understand what's happening to Daniel here. In the book, an angel asks, will you come with me to the mountains? It'll hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows, but will you come? The truth is more devastating than we suppose. Spiritual realities aren't light and fluffy. They are weighty and initially harsh. Daniel feels the full substance and force of heaven, of spiritual realities and the sharpness of them. 
causes him to cry out, I can't, I'm too weak, I can't go with you. And what's happening to Daniel is actually not all that unusual in Scripture. The prophet Isaiah has a vision of God and he cries out, woe is me, I'm lost, I'm coming undone. Peter encounters Jesus at the Sea of Galilee and he cries out, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Is it safe then to assume that if we encountered spiritual realities, we would fare no better? When the infinite meets the finite, when the perfect meets the imperfect, when the holy meets the unholy, of course we're going to be overwhelmed. Remember Daniel's confession from the previous chapter where he expanded our vocabulary for sin? Where he showed us sin is not just a whimsical falling short or a little bit of brokenness. It is an outright rejection of God and God's ways and rebellion against God and a turning toward ourselves and living for ourselves in our own ways. Daniel calls it treachery. And as a result of this open rebellion against God, true spiritual realities are much more than we can ever bear on our own because we've become accustomed to shadows rather than reality. So the weakness of Daniel shows us, no matter how spiritual or religious we may be, no matter how good we may appear in our own eyes, we cannot stand in spiritual realities by our own strength alone. We cannot stand in spiritual realities by our own strength alone. That's what our passage teaches us about weakness. But our passage also has something to teach us about strength. So let's consider strength. Daniel's cried out, my strength has evaporated. I can't, I'm too weak. But then it turns out the third time's a charm. Look at verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. The third touch is different. You see that, right? The third touch imparts strength. It's empowering. Daniel doesn't have the strength in and of himself. And so the angel touches Daniel and gives him a strength that was not of Daniel's own muster. But what I find interesting is once Daniel finally has the strength to listen. The angel doesn't rush forward to his purpose. The angels told Daniel, I'm here to give you understanding about the vision, but that gets put on hold. That's not the first thing the angel has to say to Daniel. The first thing the angel has to say to Daniel once he's finally strengthened is this, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And this is not the first time the angel said this to Daniel. Look back at verse 10, and, or sorry, verse 11 and 12. The angel already said, oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, fear not. But perhaps in his fear, in his weakness, he couldn't really hear it. The words fell on deaf ears. They didn't give him any comfort or solace. He's He's too afraid, and it's only once Daniel is finally supernaturally strengthened that the angel speaks the words again. O oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. This is not a passing comment. 
This is not a formal greeting. Daniel has to receive strength, supernatural, supernatural strengthening in order to receive these words. And it shows us that any and all spiritual understanding, because the angel has come to give Daniel understanding, but any understanding we're going to have about spiritual truth must begin with this fundamental truth. You are greatly loved. It does us no good to speak about God before we speak about God's love. But you'll be too weak on your own to really hear these words. You've maybe heard them many times before. And left to your own strength alone, as we see in Daniel, these words will fall on deaf ears. You need to be strengthened to hear these words. But how can we know we're greatly loved by God? How can we know that's not just some nice romantic thought that we're telling ourselves, biding time until we die? Well, let me ask, how do you know you're loved by anyone? Words, actions, and presence. That's how we communicate love. If someone says, I love you, that's usually a pretty good indicator that they love you. First time I told Julia, I love you, she said to me, I think I love you. And there I discovered the power of how words can build you up or crush you. <laughs> and people, they've been writing poems and scripts and stories about love, they've been exhausting words about love for all the ages. I love these two stanzas from John Frederick Nim's love poem. My clumsiest dear, whose hands shipwreck vases, at whose quick touch all glasses chip and ring, whose palms are bulls and china, burrs and linen, and have no cunning with any soft thing. Be with me, darling, early and late. Smash glasses. I will study rye music for your sake. For should your hands drop white and empty, all the toys of the world would break. I love that. I read it to Julia all romantically, and she's like, I don't get it. <laughs> words can communicate love. But for some people, words kind of make you uncomfortable, right? My family, my direct family, is not a words of love kind of family. Uh, when someone says, I love you in my family, which has happened three and a half times, Everybody gets uncomfortable. Everybody gets awkward. No one knows what to do it. The way that my parents communicate love is like, if you've been ribbed or the, 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 the object of a sarcastic comment, that is a sign that you're loved in my family. And my family, they, they demonstrate love, not through words, but through actions. My parents made a choice on that. They, they, they're convinced that actions communicate love more powerfully than words. And I think both go hand in hand, but they're, they're partly right. When someone picks you up from the airport, you cling on to that friend, right? Like that person loves you. Someone helps you move, that person loves you. Visits you when you're sick, helps you out of a bind. Actions can express love, we know this. There's words, there's actions, but there's also presence. When two people fall in love, you can't get them apart, right? Like the presence of love, is, it brings them together. There's a presence there, but that's not just true of romantic love, that's true of any love. There is something about being simply in the friend's presence whom you love, where you don't need to say anything, there doesn't necessarily have to be an action, just being together, the presence communicates love. Words, actions, and presence, and we can apply this to God too. But before we do, we need a disclaimer, because nothing says I love you like a disclaimer. 
Our cultural moment has confused infatuation, elation, and these intense portrayals of being in love where the world is suddenly in technicolor and everything is light, beautiful, and fluffy. We've confused these visions of love as the substance of love. It's a part of love, but it's not all of love. Love sometimes involves our emotions. It's sometimes intense, but most of the time it's quieter. When it comes to God's love, when we speak of God loving us, sometimes God's love is expressive and elated and intense. God rejoices over you with loud singing, says the prophet Zephaniah. As the bride rejoices over the bridegroom, so does your Lord rejoice over you, says the prophet Isaiah. A angel is sent out of the presence of God to Daniel to say, you are greatly loved. Sometimes God's love is expressive and elated and big, but more often than not, it is described in the scriptures as steadfast. God's love is steady and strong and patient and gentle and often quieter than the big light show. But if we want to know then how God loves us, how we are loved by God, we can look to words, actions, and presence. We can look to God's words, God's actions, and God's presence. Daniel heard the words, you are greatly loved. That's a pretty clear indicator. But how do we know that's true of us? It doesn't take much work to find profound expressions of God's love for you in the scriptures. I've already mentioned a few. Here's, here's a few more. I have loved you with an everlasting love. God says that through Jeremiah in chapter 31, 3. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Writes the psalmist in Psalm 103, 11. As Jesus said to John, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. John 15, 9. We can know we are loved by God by looking to the words of God in Scripture because those words are trustworthy and true. But we can also look to God's actions. The Apostle John says, God is love. Nothing more profound has ever been said about God than that. And so no matter where you go in the Scriptures, it is a story unfolding about God's love for people for his creation. And sometimes that story involves pain and suffering and tears, but God's love is always quietly at work. Whether you see him creating for the fact of simply sharing his love with creating beings, whether you look at him calling out Abraham and sharing a promise of uh, becoming a nation of people that are known by God and loved by God for the sake of the world. If you look at the Exodus or even look at obscure things like uh, the prophet Hosea marrying a prostitute to demonstrate that God's love is faithful even when his people are unfaithful. All throughout the scriptures, you see these examples of God acting in love, but it comes to its ultimate conclusion in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. As St. John wrote, God so loved the world that he gave his dearly beloved son. Or St. Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If we want to know how God has shown us his love in action, we need to look no further than the great story of Jesus Christ. 
Because everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, every action he took is in some capacity an expression of God's love at work for the sake of humanity, even while we were yet sinners. Before we even turned to him, God loved us first. But this love is not just some sort of abstract love. This is not just a general love that God generally loves the whole creation. No, this is a specific love. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says what scholars call the most intimate words, Jesus Christ died and gave himself for me. That's the only time in all of his letters that Paul talks about himself in a reflexive sort of way. And he wants us to see that, yes, Jesus Christ bore the sins of the whole world on the cross, but he died not just for the whole world, he died for you. Specifically, not generally. So we can look to the words God has spoken. We can look to the great actions of God. But there's the third way we can know God loves us, and that's presence. The reformer John Wesley was relentless about calling people to encounter the presence of God's love. But what drove Wesley to do this was actually his own encounter of God's love. Wesley grew up in a Christian home, you know, from, from bottle to university. He knew the faith. He went to Oxford. He became a priest. And in 1735, because of his zeal for the gospel, he traveled across the Atlantic to the new world of North America, but it didn't go so well. Wesley went to Georgia and fell in love. And love can make you do funny things. This young woman did not love Wesley in return, so he banned her from communion and got driven out of, of Georgia. <laughs> Worst missionary trip ever. And so overwhelmed by this sense of failure, Wesley, a year later in 1736, heads back to the United Kingdom, gets back on a boat, he's done with it. And on the way back home, there's a great storm. And it looks like they're going down. And Wesley is terrified. The, the prospect of death overwhelms him, he's trembling. And yet there is this group of Moravian missionaries singing hymns joyfully to God. And it caused Wesley to have a crisis of faith. Why was it that they both have faith in the same God, but in the face of death, one group is joyfully singing and Wesley is overwhelmed with fear? The storm passed and so he asked one of his Moravian friends what was going on. He said he was thinking of leaving ministry altogether. What should he do? And his Moravian friend simply said, keep practicing your faith until you have faith. So Wesley kept on. And it wasn't until about a year later, on May 24th, 1738, that Wesley reluctantly accepted an invitation to a Bible study at Aldersgate. And someone was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans, which is proof that you should never just skip introductions. And in that introduction, Luther describes how God works upon the heart, how God comes to dwell within us through faith alone. And as Wesley listened to these words, it was as if he heard that truth again for the first time. And he wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That's the English way of describing a powerful encounter of love. <laughs> strangely warmed. Wesley knew God's words. He could point you to the right scriptures. He knew the story of the gospel. He had preached countless sermons at this point in his life. He was not 
an unbeliever, he followed Jesus. But then he encountered God's presence. And Romans 5.5 became a hallmark verse for him. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Wesley came to see this is something we can experience. We can encounter the presence of God. Now, sometimes this is something that happens to us. Wesley wasn't chasing after this experience. But sometimes this is something we have to press into and seek after. My wife, Julia, she's been following Jesus since she was 11, a lot longer than I've been. But about eight or 10 years ago, she realized she'd never really asked God if he loved her specifically. So she started asking. Every morning she got up and she asked Jesus, do you love me? And then she waited and she listened and would read scripture and would pray. But it wasn't demanding. It wasn't accusatory. And it didn't have a time limit. She just wanted to hear from Jesus about herself. And so she prayed and she pursued and she persisted. And she didn't hear an answer right away. It took some time. It didn't take too long. And one day she was reading the scriptures and she got this strong, quiet impression of words that were not her own. I died so that I could be with you forever. I died so that I could be with you forever. These words were consistent with words of scripture. They're consistent with how God has acted in the world. But Julia felt the presence of these words. She felt the love of God expressed in these words. And so we had it made into a poster and it hangs at the entryway of our house because these words have so defined Julia. She cherishes them. You are greatly loved by God. You are greatly loved by God. That you'll be too weak on your own to really hear these words or to feel the presence of God's quiet, steady love. You need, like Daniel, to be strengthened so that you can hear these words. And the Apostle Paul understood this. And so as he prayed for the church in Ephesus, he prayed a prayer that we can start to pray. And so listen up. This prayer is so crucial. Ephesians 3 May God grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that's every follower, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Before Daniel could really hear the words, you are greatly loved, he needed to be supernaturally strengthened. He needed a mediator to stand between heaven and earth and give him the strength to hear this spiritual truth. And do you see what Paul prays here? We too need a mediator. We need a mediator to strengthen us and our mediator is the Holy Spirit. We can pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to fill us and strengthen our innermost being so that Jesus Christ can dwell within us simply by our faith in him. But we need to be strengthened for that reality. You see, the good news of Christianity 
is not that God is abstractly outside of us, somewhere in the universe, slowly working on us from the outside in. The beautiful news of Christianity is that God takes up residence within you, unifies himself with you, and works on your heart from the inside out. And at first, we're too weak to even see it. That's why Paul says, Lord, strengthen us. Give us the strength for you to dwell in our hearts. But then he prays that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us to even have the strength to comprehend the breadth and depth and height and width of God's love for us. That we need a supernatural strength to know this love. As I wrestled with this passage, I, I realized I can't explain why some people more readily experience the presence of God's love than others. I've met with enough people from St. Peter's to know that passages like this have sometimes been held over them in a way that induces hurt because they've sought after God and they don't feel any different. And the truth is, sometimes I think it comes down to temperament. I really do. But I know that no matter who you are or what your experience has been this far, we're invited to pray with Paul here. That no matter how God may or may not have answered this prayer so far, that Paul shows us we should ask for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us so we can experience this love that defies comprehension. And that through the power of the Spirit, we can. But here's the truth. You are greatly loved, and your experience of that love does not increase or decrease that truth. You're greatly loved, no matter how you feel. But may God's Spirit strengthen you so you may know the presence of his profound love. Because God answers this prayer, not always at the speed we want, but always at the right time. And his love leaves a changing mark on us. Three times in his book, Daniel repeats these words, you're greatly loved. It left a mark on Daniel. It marked Paul. It marked Wesley. It marked Julia. It's marked people throughout the ages because when you hear the words of God's love, when you see God's love on display on the cross and you also know the presence of God's love within you, this love sustains you in your day-to-day life. So no matter what may happen as you live here in exile, you're greatly loved. Nothing can change that. And that's why God alone strengthens us to be sustained by his love. So no matter how spiritual or religious we may be, we cannot stand in spiritual realities by our own strength alone. We need a mediator who can strengthen us. That's what Daniel shows us. And God sends his spirit to strengthen us so we can know in the depths of our being that we are greatly loved and that we can come to an increasing knowledge of that truth day after day. You only need to draw near to Jesus in faith and pray.